Alex is going to join later. What is he? He's like hauling something or what is he doing? I, I don't know. He has sort of a semi-farm existence. No, that's good. He does farm things. Do you ever get called a podcaster, Troy? I did last night. Did you? Was it an insult? Yeah. I, I don't know. I think people are just trying to figure out what it is, like who I am now. What is it that I do? Like, am I semi-retired? What? And then they say, oh, and your podcast. We, everybody loves your podcast. That's good. Yeah. I don't know. There's worse things to be called than a podcaster. I got called a B2B influencer. That's hot. <laughs> So one of the things, Brian, just looking at that article, this conversation started, remember when we were talking about that show that kind of moved me? I know, I didn't see it though, because I don't have my TV set up. Well, my wife made me watch it, and it's called Love Has Won. It's on HBO. It's a bizarre, bizarre show. And that's where I think this started, was a documentary about this cult cult What's it called? The I don't know what the cult's called, but she, the woman, the center of the cult is called the Mother God. Her name is Amy Carlson. The show's called Love Has Won, the Cult of Mother God. And it's a very modern cult because it began when she was a mother of two. She left her kids. She was, I think, a McDonald's manager. Everybody is quite attractive and young and seemingly sensible. And then it just got very bizarre. This thing, this this cult began as a website and then moved on to kind of like live streams on YouTube. And the group exposed like a mishmash of spiritual beliefs and conspiracy theories, including like QAnon. And they believed that they were guided by Galactics, which was a bunch of dead celebrities, mostly dead celebrities, including Robin Williams was the center of it. Curry Fisher and Donald Trump, I guess they're not all dead. And Steve Irwin, the crocodile guy. He's dead. Yeah. They do what you can only do online, which is, so they had this call and they sold merch and took donations <laughs> and live streamed on YouTube and preached the virtues of like a pot and alcohol as medicine and peddled weird health products like colloidal silver as a health remedy. Although uh, the FDA says it's not very good for you, particularly in the amounts that she was consuming. So the leader of this call, this woman, Amy, becomes a sort of central and tragic figure who is like the focus of the attention of all the cult members. And she becomes increasingly kind of bizarre and distant and detached from reality and ultimately turns into this emaciated, drunken, purple creature that they carry around because she's her skin is made purple or gray from the, the silver that she guzzles. And her diet mostly just consists of that and, and vodka. Fun. It's a bizarre story, and it's really about, I guess, what interested me, me or what, what started the conversation was the notion of the cult behavior and spirituality mix, which is, what's the term? Conspirituality. Conspirituality, which is seemingly a kind of modern phenomenon. Yeah. Is it? I guess that's what I sort of wanted to get at. I think we are between eras, and I think it would be better to go back to the 19th century when industrialization took place, all sorts of crazy things happened, not just the Luddites, but throughout the 19th century, crazy century. And all kinds of different movements sprang up. 
the Great Awakening happening in America with religious revivals and camps and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and all kinds of different religions sprang up. True American religions, too. Like, it's good. Mm -hmm. It's good that America has. Does Canada even have any religions that it has uh, spawned? Hockey. You know, I don't know. Yeah, hockey. Hockey's a religion. Hockey hockey Uh, night was a religion, wasn't it? Hockey night in Canada. Don Cherry. No, but I think that that any time of great societal upheaval, there tends to be these kind of wacky cults that come come about. Some are lasting and they become religions. Some stay just cults. And I wonder whether or not we're going to see the same because of AI, because we're seeing already a lot of the narratives that are being developed do kind of have like a spiritual component. Did you see the Beth Jesus? Is it Beth Jesus? Bezos. Jeff Bezos? Beth Jesus. Beth Jesus. Got unmasked or doxxed this week by Vox, sorry, by Forbes. So maybe we should tell people what that is. Beth Jesus was a popular meme-ish Twitter account, Yeah. right? And that's where it started. And he's an anonymous Twitter account advocating for like a balls to the wall tech capitalism future, right? Development and uh, a kind of unbridled belief in the promise of technology and a culture of builders. That yeah. was his. That was his jam. And he basically was the one who developed what is now being called. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just read this stuff. Thankfully, no one talks to me about it. EAC, EX, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the accelerationists that have basically said instead of being, they're the opposite of degrowth, that they're they're saying the effective Well, altruists, it's a play on it, effective altruists, right? Effective yes. accelerationists. Yeah. And so like any religion, you need to you have an insider, an outsider group, you need a catechism, you need a, a bunch of different things to have a religion. But this one is like, it's a very, it's a good story. It's very, it's good versus evil. And the, the evil are degrowth people. The evil are the effective altruists. The evil are government bureaucrats. The evil are, oh, the media, of course. Of course it's Mark other. Andreessen, right? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's the school of Mark Andreessen. Yeah, so it's optimists versus pessimists and stuff. This is why I was trying to get at earlier my ham-handed attempt at, at being anti-optimist is because a lot of people clothe themselves in optimism at, at, to do cultural battles, right? And I think we're seeing this across so many different areas. If I think about what Elon Musk was doing, we didn't get to, to discuss this last week because we recorded it just before he decided to tell Bob Iger and, and other major advertisers to go fuck themselves, is that he's painting the same kind of good versus evil. And it is also, it's, it's done by very sophisticated people and it's done for a reason. That's what I come at it. These are complicated issues that we're dealing with. And anytime very sophisticated people boil them down to being black and white, it's an easy call, good versus evil. There's just one side and then there's a bad side. I think that they're marketing. <laughs> well, I want to just back up for a second. So yeah, it's definitely something to dig into and think about how convenient it is to have that underpinning to a kind of modern media effort, right? Yeah. That you can root it in its essential kind of religion, belief in right and wrong, and you're with me or you're not with me. And that becomes a organizing principle for a media brand, I suppose. But I think there's just something else that's been bugging me and and I don't know if you feel this, but 
I feel like we're living in this time of great anxiety. I'm, I'm in San Francisco and I was just visiting with some old friends of ours here. And part of it is an age thing. When you're like my age, there's, you're dealing with a lot of family complexity, you know, health of parents, what are your kids doing? But like I found COVID was really hard on my parents and my parents' generation who spent a couple of years without stimulation kind of locked in their homes. And I really found the pre my mother, for example, kind of pre COVID post COVID was a very different person. Hmm. And I thought it was the same with, with my wife's parents. I, I just feel like we're dealing with a, a huge amount of change and a huge amount of uncertainty and it's creating this kind of anxiety. And then combined with that is there's, there's a kind of no centrality to society or culture where other than like football and Taylor Swift, there are no things we all share. So what other people see and what they believe to be true, some cases there's no kind of common ground to connect on. And I think as it moves into the fringes, there's tremendous distrust of a lot of what used to be kind of mainstream narratives or authority figures or institutions, like this kind of overall anxiety and then lack of trust and belief in foundational beliefs and and, and and a cultural system that we live inside of. With that, you then get the impact of media where our experiences are very personalized. It's like choose your own adventure. And inside of that, you can get small groups of people that are fed kind of bizarre ideas and stories and it can connect with one another. And that's what happened in the case of this call. It, they lived in their own little micromedia ecosystem. It was like Facebook feed as church and very, very strange. And the this, this sort of elders of it were like dead celebrities. It made me just wonder like, A, what does all this say about where media is going and like, how do we deal with it as human beings? Like, it's a weird time, man. Yeah, I don't know if the human beings are able to deal with it. I know that might make me like a D cell. <laughs> I already have a D cell problem. Well, no, I think your your take was just that there's too much change, man. Oh, uh, there's too much. Like we can't keep up. It's just too much. I mean, it's bad when I found myself listening to Tucker Carlson on the All In podcast. And, and nodding I, along. <laughs> I was agreeing with the guy. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> well, that was the most sane. I think that was the most sane interview he's ever done. But one of the things he put, he was like, we are not able to process this much societal change at once. And that there is like a case for decelerating change. You know, he was using immigration and stuff. I'm, I'm more of like a more immigration, the better, because we just need to keep growing the population. We can go to a billion. I understand his point of, you know, and I think it used to be just older people. I think the hardest thing for old people to deal with, and I think he made this point, is it's not necessarily getting old. That is hard, obviously, and it's lonely uh, to get older, but it's just from talking with older people. They see the world changing around them. They don't recognize it as the world that they knew, so to speak. And it seems like that has sped up to a degree. I don't think I'm that old. It's not like I'm like, oh, I don't understand the world. But I think a lot of the changes going on right now are there is a case to be to be made. And look, I don't believe that a, lo a lot of this AI stuff is probably oversold, but I don't I think a lot of it isn't is how do you slow down or is it possible to to slow down the rate of change to allow people to digest? Because 
I always saw this just internally. People need time to digest change. And if you move too rapidly, things will fracture. And we already saw a lot of it. We're already dealing with some of the downsides. And social media was just like a small little blip. When we talk about the changes, at least that are promised coming from AI and other technological developments that are coming down the pike, it's hard for me to see how society, which is already sort of framed. Well, I mean, it's good to maybe revisit some of the ones just so people, we can keep track of a few of them, right? Like the, just the amount of change that we've been navigating. I mean, there was the nature of media and how, I mean, that's the biggest one for sure, right? The thing that we all shared, the structure of media, mass media, to something that we all create together, we participate in is algorithmically controlled. It's not spread evenly. Some people have vastly different experiences than others. I mean, that's just one, right? Crypto came along. Crypto was about sort of replacing like the financial system was something decentralized, right? Like it was a major concept that no one, like in retrospect, no one fucking understood it, except for a <laughs> bunch of people that were in the, you know, in on the action, right? Like it was well, very yeah. strange. Well, even the people in on the action, I'm not sure if they totally understood it. They just needed the thing to keep going. By the way, people are going back to like laser eyes. I like that the people who are like- 45 grand today. Pumping up Web3. My, my Bitcoin is up. I'm up on Bitcoin I'm in the positive territory. Bitcoin's, I think, 44,000 today. I told you it would be back. Well, Ethereum is still, I'm still down overall. But they're back to, to pumping this thing up. And again, it's yeah, but like it was a super cult like too, right? You had to believe in, in a coin and you had to park, it, it had the best answer for whatever it was trying to solve. And it was totally pyramid in its structure. You benefit when you buy in and then you get other people to buy in. And yeah, and they all had strange names and, and weird figures attached to them. Like Bitcoin was weird or sorry, crypto was a weird time. Yeah. Well, it's still going on. Right. Okay, and then we have January 6th, guys with horns storming the Capitol. Very strange time. We have like, does the economy suck or does it not suck? Like we can't seem to agree on whether the economy sucks or not. Well, that's another one, right? So if you look at the economy, people judge it based on their political affiliation now. Like it's no longer about the economic fundamentals. And even when you come out with statistics, the other side will just say they're fake. People don't believe that, like uh, people, people who of a certain political persuasion just claim that the inflation figures are fake. They just say it's fake. There's no evidence. They just say that it's fake. And these are venture capitalists, I might add. <laughs> these are not just like DGEN Twitter accounts. They just say that the numbers are cooked. And that bleeds over into, I, what I worry about is that People who are, in essence, marketers are really preying on the, this loss of trust in institutions. And I don't know what comes and replaces them. Don't tell me that it's going to be on-chain. I'm not ready to trust that. So the reasons is, I don't know, I guess, decline of institutionalized religion, decline of mass media, total polarization means the only way that we can, like the, our only act is to challenge the beliefs of the other side or completely discredit them. I don't know. People are feeling tremendous economic insecurity and they're looking for something new to believe in. What, what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, I think the pandemic, like you said, I don't, 
I think it broke a lot of people, not just old people. I do think a lot of people came out of the pandemic, not just physically damaged from COVID, but like mentally sort of, I think a lot of the mental health, when you look at the statistics out there, it's hard to disentangle it from what happened during the pandemic. I saw something like 40 plus percent of Harvard's incoming freshman class is in some kind of mental health care. Now look, sure there's some people who say everyone should be in therapy. I don't know, maybe. But it's pretty alarming, I think, that when you put on top of that a lot of these rapid changes, I don't know, it it makes you it makes it makes one want want to look into pumping the brakes a little bit. But I don't know if that is possible. We 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 should get this back to media though. What does it mean for media? Well, one one last thing about the pace of change. I think it was yesterday or today, IBM announced some new achievement in quantum computing. And it's another one of those horizon type technologies that people have been talking about for a long time. Seriously, what is it? I honestly don't know what it is. You know, what they call classical computing is an on-off bit structure. It's a zero or one. Those are transistors. They're encoded into plates. We used to have a small number of them. Now there's billions of them in a chip. And quantum computing, I guess, follows the laws of quantum physics, but there's a way of creating circuits that can, it requires absolute zero temperatures. And I don't know how it works, but like basically just think that the computer gets like an order of magnitude faster, such that you can start to solve problems that you previously couldn't solve. And essentially, you're in a place where you can start modeling nature purely. Like you're sort of unlocking the code of nature because you can build insanely complex systems that model the world around you. And with that, potentially lots of advances in ways that could help us a lot in healthcare and environment, all that stuff. But again, changes that when you combine that with what's happening today in AI, which is essentially being able to sort of statistically model language and images and soon video, you're seeing machines' ability broadly to replicate organisms, us. And it's terrifying because it's just acceleration of change, is all I'm saying. Yeah. More is coming. That's it. So we can, now we can talk about media. No, 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 but I think there's a segue there, getting back to the, the Beth Jesus kind of thing, because there is a priest class. Uh, okay, let's just, I posited this on a previous podcast of ours several months ago, which is that technology has replaced religion. Maybe you can say celebrity has replaced religion, but technology has replaced religion as far as how we explain the world and why we are here. Since the dawn of time, people have asked, why am I here? Why us? And technology has now replaced the great books and has its own narrative. And we're going to crack the code and, you know, the transhumanists want us to merge with technology. I think the Times had a big narrative story about the, the birth of AI, and I'm sure they sanded off a lot of the edges as, as all narratives do. But if you read it, it's kind of scary. Larry Page is basically advocating for just becoming one with technology. And it sort of leads me to think with this Beth Jesus guy is a good example. He's a very accomplished AI researcher. And half the things I'm like, wow, this guy's really working on some interesting stuff. Sounds like it. And there's this idea of doxing. And the media is usually about holding truth to power. And I think tech has always been chafed at this idea of being held 
accountable by media. I mean, why media? I mean, if the government is not, who appointed the media to, to play this role? But there is the question about, does it matter the sort of morals, the ethics, and the worldviews of the human beings who are pushing this forward? Because I think it does. I would love to hear, like, do you think it does not? Because I think that increasingly the direction of societies is being driven by the direction of technology, isn't it? Aren't they? Yeah. So what does that mean practically? What are you saying? So we should force all of this innovation through some type of structure that questions or that regulates or... Oh, no, studies. I'm not going to regulation or anything like that. Well, that's this. where it goes, right? I mean, I this isn't about... Maybe, but I want to start with anytime new power centers come on as an editor, I would be like, okay, I want to know who these people are. I want to know what they believe. I want to know what their For experiences sure. are. And I want, to, I want to know how that shaped their worldviews. Were they stuffed in lockers as kids? We felt this about Sam Altman through this whole chapter, right? We wanted to say, well, you thought he was incapable of leading this company for some reason because he made decisions that made you uncomfortable. You're looking at a set of technologies in the hands of a group of people and you're like, whoa, whoa, maybe this isn't the right person to do it or we should pull back a little. We feel comfortable with Sam because he looks like boy next door. Right. Like he doesn't look like an evil tech yeah, dude. He looks like a nice young man. Yeah. I mean, how would that work practically, Brian? What kind of scrutiny are you talking about? Are you talking about well, media scrutiny? So, this is the part that, like, if I'm going to be conspiritualist myself, I could easily spin like a tale about this war between tech and quote unquote the media, which is in unbelievable decline. I, I can't imagine to fight against a power center, you don't stop your opponent from beating himself. I don't understand why tech has decided that media is the enemy. And the only thing I can think of is to is to do away with any kind of oversight function. And that like that there isn't a desire to have any questions asked whatsoever. Well media is seen as a lower level function. Oh for sure. Well you could argue it is at the same time, we all have roles to play. And I, let's just say like stipulated, you know, media, they're not, the people in the media are not, are jealous. They're not smart enough to be tech people. Okay, great. Okay. Okay, fine. But can we also get to know who you people are, what you believe, where you came from? That's what media does. And I think it serves an essential function. And my question is, why, why, why is that such a threat? I know that seems like, seems like not a big deal. I think what we're going to be seeing, because the power of media is already going down as a centralized function, is there's going to be parallel media structures and media entities that are already being developed by techno-optimists, E-Acts, whatever we want to call them. They're going to have their own media ecosystems just the same way as we have a media ecosystem that caters to conservative or progressive points of view. I see it already with some newsletter writers who have clearly seen where the prevailing winds are going and have aligned themselves completely with the EAC side because that's where the money is. That's what I would say. But maybe that's are, would you like who would you put in that group? Like pirate wires, like that. Oh yeah, that well, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I like Packy, but Packy has thrown Packy McCormick at, at not boring. I would say is like an EAC. He's invested in the Beth Jezos company. And actually, it's good good sort of context. The crypto movement had a media appendage, 
Yeah. There was a lot of media around crypto. Remember we did that me- the, the crypto project and we were like, oh, let's see yeah. who like, you know, is running these like, this is back in the, the good old days of the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic was terrible, but 2021 was just a great time for the economy. Yeah, I mean, they had their own media organs and stuff like this. And they claimed, mm-hmm. oh, no, no, they're, they're independent. We just happen to own them. You can see, even though he's, I don't know, I guess he's not an accelerationist, but SBF operated as a kind of media benefactor. Well, he was you on know, the EA, he was the EA side, and so they. Not only that, he own. funded the block. He gave money to all kinds of media people and philanthropies and all kinds of yeah. stuff. So, if conservative media grew up as a reaction to the the idea that quote unquote the, the mainstream media was in league with progressivism, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I think that the EAX movement will have its own media. Do you pronounce that with a Y, yaks? I don't know. That's a good way to think of it, right? As I said, I don't know how to pronounce it because I don't, I thankfully don't talk to anyone who talks about this. (laughs) I'll see if my in-laws, it comes up over dinner tonight. (laughs) Don't think it. (laughs) I think that that is because if you're going to have a religion, like we talk a lot about how media is a good front end to different businesses, right? And on its own as a business, not that great. Media is a great front end to like religion, right? I'm dumb. Every single religion is built off of media. They've got an events function. They've got the sacred text. You know, they, they've Publishing. got it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They got yeah, yeah. influencers. But you always have to have media baked in there. And so I think we're going we're gonna to see the rise of this new fault line. We're going to have media on both sides to some degree. And what will be interesting to me is this is happening at a time when institutional media has never been weaker. And so that's when you have someone like a Beth Jesus. I can't get over this. This I would say, if you read the Forbes article and the kind of influence he has with people like Sam Altman, his Twitter account alone is probably more influential in technology, which is more powerful than any other center of our society than Forbes is. That's crazy. Because why? Why why do you say that, Brian? Because what Beth Jezos was able to do was not create an audience. He created followers, not followers like they hit follow to follow his Twitter account. He created a religious movement. (laughs) I mean, what media could compete with that? I mean, the most media tries to pass off is that their audience is a community. Forget about creating a community, Create, create a religion. So this does this all fit nicely inside of your sort of info space thesis? I'll make it fit. <laughs> no, I think it does. Take us on that journey. Well, because the way I look at it is the information space is perfect for this to take place in because anytime there's a vacuum, there's always a rush to fill that vacuum. And the demise of institutional media, and I do not necessarily for this purpose care who caused it, has created a vacuum. And that vacuum is being filled with a cacophony of different voices. And you can argue it's good or it's bad. It's a reality. And so there are no gatekeepers. There are individuals. There are anonymous DGEN Twitter accounts that are powerful. There are companies. Memes as media format, new media formats. I mean, think about it. It's like with TikTok, 
we don't know even what is popular. Like that, the story about Osama bin Laden's letter trending on TikTok, I still don't even know if it was real or not. I have no idea. It was like two weeks ago. I've just forgotten it. It's just sort of washed over me. You mean you hadn't seen, you, you never saw the, those posts? I saw those posts. No, I saw them on Twitter. But then subsequently to that, I then read that it actually didn't really take off on TikTok until it went viral on Twitter about it being viral on TikTok, but it wasn't actually viral on TikTok until it was viral on Twitter, which made it viral on TikTok talking about the Twitter talking about it being on TikTok. I mean, I guess it, what I'm trying is, to say, Troy, is I'm increasingly questioning reality. <laughs> right. Well, it's a good example because I think that the question there was one of providence, but also like how it started, but how big it actually was. Just to remind folks, there were young people on TikTok re-examining or examining the letter that, that Osama bin Laden had written after 9-11 and saying, actually, there's a lot of good thoughts here. Well, you know, like, <laughs> and of course, people were like aghast because it was, that's crazy talk. Some guy on Twitter who's like an attention whore was a guest. And you know what that story is? What we in the mainstream media would call too good to check. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So, of course, he just rushed it out, and then everyone wrote about but it. But it. it's a classic example of the perils of modern media where something that is unchecked, unsubstantiated, unquantified becomes an example of how the youth have gone. Out, they're out of their minds, right? And so there's no filtering or validation mechanism in the media. It's just a fucking free-for-all. Right. And so... And that's the modern media condition. It's like, you don't know where it came from. You don't know how big it is, but it's true if you choose for it to be true. Right. So that to me is the definition of the information space is it has no centrality. It barely has nodes. It just like exists in this miasma in which everyone and everything is rushing to fill it with content, just shoving content that, that hopefully will get some kind of attention and then persuade people towards in one direction or the other at the end of the day. And well, I, I just want to, one of the things I was looking forward to do, Alex was, I don't know, parking a cyber truck or something, who knows what he was doing, but he was, was going to join something. He was, one of the he things was he was hauling. excited about talking about was the release of the new Grand Theft Auto trailer which I wanted to get his take on, which is spectacular if you haven't seen it. But to bring where, this where back... Is it, and, where is it located? Miami. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. And the soundtrack, bizarrely, is a Tom Petty song. You have to see it. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. It should have had Pitbull. Right. It's the patron saint of Miami. There's a couple of things, I think, left where we could go, Brian, and one of them is, what do we do for those poor young people that have to live in this ecosystem? How do we, should we think about this? And then there's maybe the slightly funnier and more cynical take, which is what advice would you give aspiring media entrepreneurs to live inside of this? And let's start there because you, you made an example today when we were talking earlier, you said someone like dared to talk about their like com score number. Oh yeah. I'll call them out the hill. They're never going to send me a press release ever again. It'd be perfect. Tie, tie the Hills press release of their comm score number with this cult. Like connect these two things. 
I don't know if you see it. It's like when you step out of the day-to-day of media companies trying to grapple with their direction and just the everyday, just like so many things coming at you, this is the joy of not being in that, is you start to realize that just like every general, they fight the last wars. And so much of media, and I understand of the media business, seems to be still focused on yesterday's battles. And they're kind of over. I'm genuinely shocked that anyone would be wagering their future on getting people to come to a website to then show them ads. I, that, that, it, it honestly shocks me. Really? I understand operating that way now and building the, the future kind of thing. Oh my God, that's like, so crazy that you're saying, I mean, you built a whole media company around that idea. Did you? Not really. Not really, no. Well, kind of. we, well no, because like 75% of the revenue or 65% at the end came from events. And your audience had built their business on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. But it's a business that's declining to zero. But let, let's restate what you just said, because it's profound that the idea that we would bring people to a website to see ads feels like desperately out of date. Does that not go to zero? How does that not go to zero? You sound like Alex. Well, I, okay, so let's think about it. You have no control over the distribution, as you have pointed out many times. So you have no control over how many people even get to that website. It does not matter. You have no control over it. Okay, number one. Number two, you don't even have control over the monetization increasingly. <laughs> you can't sell ads directly. You're relying on some black box algorithms of PMAX and all the other stuff that is being ginned up inside of algorithms. On top of that, you have all of this synthetic AI content gunk that is coming out. And sure, give a lot of shit like I did to Arena, whoever's using these AI tools. They came back. There were unnamed individuals that came back to me and thanked me for being level headed in that conversation. FYI. Did they work for like a private equity firm? Actually, I talked with a private equity guy yesterday. Lovely people. The private equity people get too much shit. He was great. Oh, the, no, they're great. They're great. They're usually really smart and they're, they're calm yeah. because they're sitting on top of the they're stack. They're super calm. I know. That's the thing. I was like pulling my hair out. I'm in a WeWork, one of those phone booths where I look like I'm in a, in a sauna. No, we're like the little this. characters in the game. They got the fucking joysticks. This guy, he was dressed nice, but not too nice. And he was in Dallas. It was great. I really enjoyed it. What was I saying? Oh, the you website. Were <laughs> so then with the synthetic AI coming on, okay, the amount of web pages is going to be infinite. Infinite. Well, the construct of a web page is over. It's really the corollary to that point. Yeah. So how can you possibly build a business around that? I don't understand how you can. I understand how you operate the business. If you yeah, I'm it. just, you know, I, there's people out there saying, well, then, so what are we doing, Brian? What are we going to all just do activations all day long? What are we doing? How are we going to make yeah. the money? I mean, it's, it's Art Basel right now here in Miami, and there's plenty of <laughs> activation. I could go to the EatsCon by the Invatuation, although they're now owned by a brand. Shows where publishing is going. We've got the Nylon House where I wasn't, I wasn't invited to. Yeah, After I mean, all I'm, that, you didn't get an invite? We had like that doofus on the podcast, he didn't invite you? <laughs> I know. It's crazy, right? I'll just show up. What do you mean? What, what does it mean for like media? Well, get used to competing with like everyone, like everyone 
I would say that's like number one, because you're just in the information space and you're just another node and nothing is given to anyone. So individuals are so much better positioned to be able to figure out a way than to me like big companies, but I'm biased. Okay. So then when it's individuals, you just get that, you know, you get just massive fragmentation and little city states. There is going to be massive fragmentation no matter what. I mean, there already right. is. And it's it's impossible to see that slowing down, particularly as consumer habits change. You use these tools enough, you start to get used to not like hitting the back button. Maybe you future-proofed yourself. Pretty cool. And then we have to ask, and maybe we can keep this a lean episode. Looks like Alex didn't show up. He's, he's still asking what time it is. Is he texting us? I have always advocated for East Coast centrality and that everyone should talk Eastern time and not bring any of the specific time to the table, okay? And I'm like, you can do the math, just track three. Forget about it if you're in the mountain or some weird time zone. I'm ready just to go over and talk entirely with this podcast in Pacific time. That's my offer. Okay, we'll bring that up with Alex. But there was, he was very happy this week because the New York Times used the term fracking in that op-ed about how impossible it seems to be to teach young people because they think and operate like crackheads because their attention's all scattered constantly because of phones and social media and all that shit. And the point of the story was we need to be teaching young people about attention. We need to teach media literacy and critical thinking. We need to make the center of, of humanities instruction, not just about classical humanities stuff, but like about how we process information now and what it means to be a kind of citizen. Yeah, I think that's a good... Doesn't that feel important? Oh, that feels very important. Maybe it just feels naive. I mean, I just think that when I hear like media literacy and stuff like this, I'm reminded of when... We started outsourcing all the jobs in the name of globalization. And the answer was always, we need retraining. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So you're cynical about it. Well, I'm a little bit just because when in Washington, when they say, well, well, we'll do a commission, we'll figure it out with a commission. I just don't know if that will end up solving being enough. I'm personally grateful for the last of our shared cultural moments, which is sport. Because that seems to oh, be yeah. the time when when I am too. My son and I sports and Taylor Swift I find common ground. Him and I hang out and watch NFL. Sometimes now basketball. Yeah, that's an, that's the next shoe to drop. Though we can do that on a different episode. The sports rights deals are going to get rationalized. I think Mark Cuban might be knowing something when he got out. He sold broadcast.com for like a bill. He knows when to get out and he just sold it. Uh, it was five, five billion. <laughs> five billion. I mean, my God. In, but, at the perfect time. That wasn't that the last great deal before the collapse. Yeah. And then he turned it and he spent like three of it on the Mavericks and like 10x his investment and got to own an NBA <laughs> team for like 20 years. So where does this leave us, Brian? Oh, we, gotta I think slower, it, we gotta slow her down. What do we gotta do? I would love for us to have a more pastoral future. I don't think that's possible, unfortunately. So we're just gonna have to find our way. I mean, I'm actually optimistic. I often Are you an accelerationist? No, I'm not. I, I'm more like, did you see the Ethereum guy? 
Vitalik Buterin. He's trying to establish a middle ground between the accelerationists and the effective altruists slash decel people. And I'm usually most comfortable in the middle ground. I don't trust zealots. I was never very good at religion for that reason. <laughs> what would you say should be the policy response? Oh my God, I have no idea. I understand the idea that you don't want to hamstrung an injury, and I understand a regulatory capture and all of this. I also understand that oftentimes these things are also used just as marketing or lobbying. And trying to, to have people in Washington, D.C. decide the future of technology just seems on its face a terrible idea, right? Except there are instances, and I think there are a lot of this is posturing, and at the end of the day, I can't just open up a meat process. I can't even imagine how it would work, actually. I don't know how it would work either. You know, I think this is what the accelerationists are saying. It's like, you're trying to take our compute from us. You read some of the stuff and they're talking about bombing data centers and like missiles into data centers and whatnot. It, it gets pretty dystopian pretty quickly. So I don't know. I'm not a, a regulatory maven. But that's another thing that I feel like is just an easy stop. It's like, well, we just need sensible regulations. I don't know. We'd have to get someone on who knows about the regulation stuff. We might need to do that. We're going to have to cut it short. I have to run to a meeting. I, do you have a little best product to throw in here? I know that's something that you bring sometimes. That I bring? I rarely bring good products. I don't, I don't experience a lot of products. What about products slash service hybrids? <laughs> products slash service I've never owned a car before. I'm going to have a subscription to a car. Talk about peak subscription. I didn't have a car subscriptions, but it's from Sixth, the like European, my favorite car rental service. That's kind of cool. No worries, no fuss, 600 bucks a month, you got a card stuff. Yeah, so like that. Yeah. You're not tied in to anything. You can cancel and you can trade it in for another car. I don't know. I, it seems like better than a lease. And Is I it have writing on the months. outside? Does it say like, no, it's Whatever. just like a rent. No, it's like a rental car. No, but they won't tell me what kind of car it is. But I don't care. I don't know. The thing that scares me about it, though, is I don't like parking in parking garages. I'm a fine driver, considering I haven't driven that much as an adult. Something about parking garages. I just don't like parking garages. <laughs> All right, there's probably a phobia. There's probably a name for that. Well, I've like dinged up several cars in parking garages. Okay, Alex didn't make it. I got to run to this meeting. Okay. Ciao. Thanks, Bert. See ya. Shouldn't San Francisco have good internet? You'd think it should, huh? Why? Well, it's like... Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's not always great. Anyway, due to scheduling issues and Alex hauling something, hauling? I don't know what he was doing exactly. It sounded very manual. I agreed during the call to give up on my East Coast bias of... You don't follow football, but there's always this talk about East Coast bias that anyone who plays for like the California schools, nobody cares because the games are on late at night and nobody sees them or something. Right. And so I've always believed that we should only use East Coast time and that everyone from the West Coast should just subtract three hours and anyone who's in, in between doesn't really matter. They, they accept it. Oh, that's nice. I'm willing to only talk in Pacific time with regard to this podcast for now. <laughs> it's... Yeah, no. That's a gotta, concession. It's a I concession. I mean, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, forget it with the European time. I mean, that was like another. <sighs> yeah, and also it changes. Sometimes it's 
an hour less and sometimes it's an hour more depending on what time of the year it is. But do you think after living here for over a decade, I'd figure out how to convert East Coast to West Coast time better? It's just minus three. I know, um, I know. It, so, it's- so we talked about the rise of, of cults and new religions. And in particular, do you, by the way, how do you pronounce? Is it EAC or EAX? Yeah, I don't actually know. I think I've only rated. I think EA or EAC. EAC. I, I, yeah. So we're talking about this as like a new quasi-religion mm-hmm. in, in some ways. And like every religion, sands off the edges. There's good versus evil. There's sacred texts. There's high priests and whatnot. And yeah. this definitely seems like a new one. Beth Jesus got exposed this week and then immediately raised the $15 million round for his AI startup, which is great. It's like the pivot from like, I was doxxed, my personal safety is at threat. And it's like, I'd like to introduce my new partners or my startup. And I kind of compared it to what went on in the 19th century when there was a time of great societal upheaval of moving from agrarian economies to with industrialization and urbanization. And then in America, massive influx of immigration in the country, I don't know, 10x in size. And that leads to a lot of crazy stuff. And we had uh, so many different religions that were started. They're all like startups, right? Yeah. Not all of them like succeeded, but that's yeah. when we got Mormonism. We got Jehovah's Witness. We got some that didn't make it. And I think we're going to see the birth of new religions right now. Well, I mean, I think the stakes feel heightened because there's all this language around, you know, AI turning the world into a utopia or into a dystopia, right? It's like very binary right now. So the technology feels very consequential. But having been in tech for close to 30 years, I guess, nearly, or 25 years, I haven't seen any conversation around technology not turning into religious undertones. It's really crazy. It's I think it's part of it is a little nerd culture is like that when something that you know something about becomes so ingrained in your identity that anything that goes against it is an attack on your personality or and so if you deal with engineers or even you know software people in general these religious-like affiliations have been happening since the beginning. It's, it, for me, it doesn't feel, it feels like reading all the press around it feels like, huh, it's interesting that that's getting so much play because that type of stuff's been happening forever. You know, Unix versus Windows and Apple versus PC and Xbox versus PlayStation, but it goes all the way down to the metal, like people that were on Intel versus AMD processors. or sure. And so... I don't think it's it's entirely unique to technology, but I think there's kind of that blending of like nerds and which I consider myself and feeling really deeply about something that they've been working on for a long time and having a philosophy around it. And these conversations get pretty heated, even around like project management processes or stuff like that, around how you build software or Agile versus waterfall, or whatever all these conversations have been, and it is, to me, this feels somewhat similar. I think tech people are always really good at naming things. Oh, you're part of this group because there's nothing more fun than naming a thing. I don't know. I live here, and I don't quite feel it as as a cult. More like business as usual. Okay. Sense? Yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, I think like the stakes. I guess the unknown is whether the stakes are truly high, higher for this. And at this moment, 
than they were for like Linux versus <laughs> Microsoft or something. Sure. Like, I don't know. It just seems like the open source people were pretty rabid. But again, technology broadly as an industry, as we discussed, is in a much different position now. And I always feel like there's a lag between people recognizing that how much things have changed. And, you know, ultimately, Every power center develops its own. That's why I think this, Troy and I were talking about how I think this EX, I'm going to call it, movement, you know, they're developing their own media and media will align with this point of view just the same way as conservative and progressive political orientations have their own media. I think that you're going to see that broadly take place with technology. I just think technology has become, for better or for worse, a societal fault line to some degree. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want to paint it like Luddites versus optimists. I mean, gee, which side is more attractive? Yeah, like you know, bummer town versus party town. That's what, yeah. yeah. You know, most people will choose the optimist side, not the safetyist side. And the answer is always somewhere in between, of course. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the stakes are definitely higher here. Maybe the behavior is new because it's. I think that when you're outside of Silicon Valley, you think it's kind of like this homogenous group of people, but it's actually pretty tribal. There's a lot of people who believe in things very differently, right? Including like just the financialization of technology versus the freedom fighter side of the internet, oh, yeah. and and even within companies, the way we build software and what we owe humanity versus why like the, the profit outcome, and so there's a lot of tensions there. I don't find that these things usually last very long because the market always seems to dictate who the winner is. So it's crazy to think, but like the open source versus closed source conversation was a real thing that like a lot of companies spent a lot of time on. And it's still a topic, but at some point, basically, many people just had a MacBooks, right? And everything ran on Google Cloud. And Android was kind of an open system, but also Google controlled it with their app stores and their rules on top of it. Like the, the market uh, makes these decisions. So these factions become less important and lose a lot of power. And at the end of the day, there is just the thing. So I wouldn't be surprised in three, four, five years' time if we're not talking about EAX or, you know, Doomers or whatever. We're just saying, well, that's just the way it works now. And that's, that's what I want. Yeah. I think you're you're actually I think I actually agree with you. Damn. <laughs> because because right, well this was the episode guys. Thank you for listening. Well, because it's it's like posturing to some degree. I don't it's part of the process is to I guess maybe it could be viewed as being cynical, but I just I guess I've seen this develop like too many times where a lot of stuff is is to me like marketing or lobbying to some degree. And so you're always going to take an extreme position because you're going to want the result to be closer to your position. And you don't start in the middle. You start with the extreme position, right? Mm -hmm. Like That's how any negotiation takes place. And negotiations are taking place throughout societies. We negotiate all sorts of different things. It's how societies work, okay? And and different power centers, they exert their leverage in different ways. We see this with Elon Musk all, all the time. And I think a lot of that is what's happening now. And so you try to define the other side. This, is, this happens all the time in politics. And, oh, go figure, you define the other side as, as nefarious and evil and all that, the rest of that kind of thing. The financial upside is, this, is so massive that everybody's got like incentives to really pitch their own side, right? Like I find it a little bit crazy to say to 
be having a conversation about this technology that has so many unknowns and having people who are like, oh yeah, no, we need to go balls to the wall, throw everything at it. And people who are, no, no, let's slow everything down. While most of the work's going to be done in the middle. Like it's, it feels like everybody's just dealing in talking points to make sure that like daddy government takes one side or the other and they know it's going to be diluted. So yeah. they might as well ask for 10 times more than what they really want. You know what I mean? Is there a scenario where this becomes just like open source, where like open source just became like, yeah, it's one one part of the system. Yeah, and, you, yeah, yeah, it's useful. Turns out, you know, like our servers use an open source software, but we also run Google Cloud and everybody has a Mac. <laughs> you know, right. which is like But I remember when I first started reporting on technology when I knew like literally nothing. Like literally nothing. And reading up on all the open source stuff, and it was like it did have a religious fervor. It was like a movement. <laughs> And maybe it was not like as publicly kind of fervent because the stakes didn't feel quite as high. But when you talk to people right. that cared about it, they were like, this is the end of software. Like Microsoft's going to take over and you guys are all going to be slaves to Microsoft's software. And then 10, 15 years later, we're like, eh, no, it's a mix. Like some things won, some things didn't. Yeah. But it keeps it keeps happening. It's been happening since this is the beginning. I remember people that were like so against the mouse. <laughs> And the visual, like moving files around on a desktop because it was... People were against the mouse? Well, because it was crazy not to use a terminal to do all these commands, right? The people still use terminal-based code editors because that's the real way to code. Any industry is kind of has these built-in dogmas that people get really attached to and it becomes part of their personality. So it's just, I think this is just an extension of that. At the end of the day, I wonder, like OpenAI... <laughs> Did what happened at OpenAI was that there was like a, a board of people who were maybe already individually wealthy and were trying to maybe slow things down or take out a CEO, but then everybody working at OpenAI realized that this could buy them a house and buy them a house. <laughs> Shit, things are expensive out there, but it's gonna be a good buddy, house. Buddy, buddy. <laughs> like buying a house in San Francisco is no joke. Then they kind of turned, as most people do. My dad was a hippie, and he ended up working for a petroleum company. Like, <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works. It works. So I think best intentions, and also I think a lot of the EAC kind of punditry is just sounds very fake to me because they're making so many assumptions. They're making so many assumptions in one direction that they refuse to make in the other direction. How can we assume that it's not safe when we can perfectly assume that it's a hundred percent safe? That fallacy is is a little annoying, but outside of that, I'm not taking a side. Yeah, I, I want to find a middle ground. The, the the Ethereum guy Vitalik, he wrote an extremely long thing that seems to me somewhat progressive enough. It's like acceleration enough, but with the whoa, wow, a, cent go a centrist crypto person. That's well, that's Ethereum was always. I don't know. He seemed like he was always the most sort of centrist of the crypto crazies. Which, by the way, they're back. They're back. It's all back. It's all back, yeah. They didn't, cults don't go away. They just stay quiet for a little bit, but they're back. The laser eyes are coming back, which is very exciting. Troy wanted me to get your take on this Grand Theft Auto. I had no idea it was based in Miami. It's very exciting. Yeah. Big miss by having Tom Petty. That should have been Pitbull, and it's obvious. Oh, Mr. Worldwide? That's who you wanted on that? Well, Pitbull's like the mascot of Miami, for better or for worse. Oh, for worse. <laughs> for, for sure, for worse. 
But yes, so so some drama there. Grand Theft Auto, massive franchise, but also this latest version has been plagued with leaks. There was a massive leak of development footage that came out, and this time they were meant to release it today, but it got leaked yesterday. I think people or whenever people are listening to this podcast. Anyway, it was it was leaked, so so they decided to release it early. Thing to understand is that by the time this game releases, ten years will have passed since the release of Grand Theft Auto V. This is releasing in 2025, so not next year, but the year after that. I think it's going to be the biggest media event of the decade. I don't think there's anything of that scale, a single piece of content media that is going to have as big of a of an audience as and potential for generating revenue and excitement than Grand Theft Auto VI. Mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto V made $8 billion dollars the franchise has sold like hundreds of millions of copies. They, they have a decade of development. The game is going to come out and be like like nothing before it. And it'll sell like a, a billion in, in a weekend. <laughs> like, you know, I worked on the Modern Warfare franchise, and that's a huge thing. You know, it releases and makes Avatar money over a weekend. <laughs> and yet Grand Theft Auto is even bigger. Okay, so the biggest media event, did you say of all time? Of the decade, of this decade. (laughs) Of the decade, okay, this decade. And how will that manifest itself? Because I think this is the part where I struggle with with video games and their cultural heft. Mm -hmm. I know that eight billions, like totally, I get it. Massive, 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 massive money makers. And Troy and I talked about this before, is just the loss of centrality to culture is, I don't think we've fully grasped how unusual that is. And this is going to be the biggest media event of the decade, right? Yeah. And for a large group of people, they have no idea it happened. None. They have, right? I mean, I think you're, you're noticing that games are seeping a little bit more into mainstream culture. But what I'm saying is like, first of all, we don't watch TV anymore. There's not going to be scenes of people lined up around the block. There's not going to be, you know what oh, I mean? Like yeah. we're missing, I think this is the part that I, I, there are all these things that were like shared experiences. I actually thought about this a little bit on Black Friday. It sort of like made a little haha on what used to be known as Twitter about like, oh, I miss the days when there was the videos of the brawls at Walmart Scrim. at midnight. And at least it was a shared experience, right? Now we don't even have that. We live in a, a new era and hanging outside. And, you know, it still happens hanging outside the store. I'm sure there will be a, a significant number of people that will be outside of a Best Buy waiting for the midnight release of GTA 5 uh, or 6. I mean, this is a fun thing to do. However, the event is going to be happening online. And actually, if you're in that scene, it feels hugely consequential and community building. The amount of just content that's going to be created around the release. Already yesterday with the with the trailer leak, I watched, you know, I, I kind of was browsing YouTube and there were already like dozens of commentary video of people like commentating on the 90-second video frame by frame that were gathering millions of views and hundreds of thousands of comments. But this is a thing. It's a thing. No, no, no. I I get it. Like within the community, that community, it is a thing. And it's a large community. It's a giant industry and a dwarf southern media. Agreed, 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 agreed. Yeah. So I guess the the point that, you know, and we we touched upon this before, and because that's why I think we're going to have a lot of these quasi religions and sects, like, (laughs) because the downside, we talk about the upsides of niche and moving from mass to niche or niche. You are European, I'll use niche. Yeah. But there are downsides to that and the loss of shared experience. And that's why I always thought that 
Barbie movie or Taylor Swift and honestly the NFL, they're all throwbacks to the final last gasps of mass culture. And even when you think about celebrity, there have never been more celebrities in the world than there are today. today. Yeah. There are people who are so famous, I have never, ever, ever heard of them. Yeah. Never. And, and you never will. That's just, I never will. Yeah. And so we don't fully know the impact of the loss of any kind of shared experience that we have. And look, I'm not blaming video games or something like this. I'm just saying this is just indicative of how it goes. And we're going to have the media event of the decade and that it will go untouched by, I would say, the majority of, of people. Yeah, well, I mean... Would that be fair? I, I think it's... I mean, I think that's always been the case, right? Like even when the movie Titanic came out, a lot no of way. people... That's not been the case. That's not been... No, no way. No way. Well, a lot of people no didn't way. see it. But when you talk about kind of these social experiences, even when you talk about, let's say, the NFL, the vast majority of people watch this at home. It's not like everybody goes down to the stadium and watches it happen. I was actually just listening to people talk about David Fincher's latest movie, The Killer, which came out in a few theaters, but mostly came out of Netflix. It was part of his Netflix deal. Oh, and, yeah. And I saw it. I hated it. I thought I was like, I read, I was like, I don't, I read the reviews afterwards and I was like, really? It was terrible. Oh, I was one of the people who liked it. I think it's, it's divisive. Like it. But a lot of people ended up watching this movie on Netflix. There wasn't kind of the Barbie moment or even the moment when we went to watch Fincher movies at, at the theater. But if you think about it, I think people create their own community around that. And video games are particularly communal because they allow for the creation of content around the, around the core game. So many of these games like generate Twitch streams, which are communal environments, much more or similar to the ones you've seen in sports. People play video mm -hmm. games sitting around the TV together. People play video games socially and multimedia. So there won't be these scenes of people waiting outside the stores or people going into a stadium or whatever. But that's always been the minority of people. The minority of people went to see Taylor Swift live. Most people who enjoy Taylor Swift just listen to her on Spotify. Like it's that's the way it is. This tells me that you did not grow up in Philadelphia. That's no, that, but I, this I, I, is what this tells I, I, me. Because let me tell you, when when the Eagles they lost really badly this weekend, so this is a bad example. But like when the Eagles are doing well, and particularly if they were on the road to the Super Bowl, trust me, you know. You know. Oh, oh sure. Okay. <laughs> it is a communal experience. Oh, sure. I mean, sports, sports is still is like, a communal experience. Like, I mean, Europe, we have the European Cup yeah. and the World Cup, or being in Mexico for Formula One. Yeah, but Formula One is that's a brand activation. I also, no, but I, I mean, Formula, Formula One, one they, had a, they have a local driver, right, who flamed out in the first 18 seconds. And I was sitting in the stands, and it's like I heard Mexico City, like, just like sigh. And just get bummed out in a second. I I understand this collective effervescence of events that happen, and everybody's talking about them. But it just depends which group you're in. If you're in a sports town, it's the sports thing, you know. If if you're in San Francisco, by the way, you want a buzzing cultural event like Sam Altman, right? Being kicked out. That was our like. <laughs> you know, Eagles losing thing. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody talked about it. It just depends which community you're in and communities being dispersed around the internet and you have massive communities that you'll never heard of because our bubbles are never going to cross. And so large kind of... Yeah. This Grand Theft Auto V thing is like 
everybody will know someone who plays it. Everybody right. will see something about it. Everybody will be talking about it. I, I'm sort of being judgy, but I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be too judgy in that I, I do think that there is something lost. I do think that it's indicative of where things are going. For, for instance, the, the number of celebrities and niche celebrities and the fact that like people can get a level of celebrity today that I think that's terrible. Why, why, like, why, I think is that? That, why is it that we need I don't like think, one, like one oh, massive band easily. that is managed by gatekeepers that is the music everybody listens to versus like some No, 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 that's not, that's not that's what I like mean. That's it. not what I mean. I think most people are not meant for celebrity. Like I just think oh, that like... Oh yeah, no, I speak, agree with that. That's, ter that's terrible. I think that we'll have so many of these stories. Like I don't know, I read the story about this former Disney executive who then his wife became a wellness influencer and he got into the wellness influencer thing. And then they became a family influencer and stuff like this. And you can imagine how it ended. Tragic end, drugs in the system, untimely death, et cetera, after the broken marriage and stuff. I, I don't think these stories I mean, this are thing happens without celebrity, but, but celebrity is generally, a, being famous is generally a state that most people regret as soon as they're like, famous to an extent where they lose a lot of their anonymity. But if you think about it, being a micro-celebrity might be good. You get some of the benefits of being famous in your circles. At some point, some people in the design community would recognize me in the street. And so when I went to a design conference, it was cool to have a couple of people say, hey, you're the guy. Oh, really? But then when I, have you ever given an autograph? Yeah, actually. <laughs> you did? Yeah, it was weird. Did you like sign someone's forehead? Yeah, someone's butt cheek. No, I... Uh, really? <laughs> It sounds like is this an Austrian? Isn't that something like like I don't know some like eighties rock star thing? No, no, it was it was a, a real a real autograph of something. But you know, like That's you know, great. so I, I got like a little bit of that. But then the rest of the time, nobody knew who the fuck I was, which is great. So maybe that's what they're getting out of that. Yeah, no, the ideal is if you get recognized somewhere and it's like unusual, right? Yeah, exactly. Or when somebody tells me like like I had a take on social media. And somebody came in and says, you always say this on the podcast, but I disagree. And I'm like, whoa, this is like this personal relationship people get with podcasters as if they live. Well, with I them. think we've seen it all when we talk about micro celebrity is you see that it with people that become, say, really popular on Twitter or Instagram or something on X, whatever. On First of all, it's again, it's never been easier to be a quote unquote celebrity to some degree because celebrities gotten defined down. There's so many of them and stuff like but I still think that I don't think a lot of people are are ready for the negativity that comes along with that. And it's interesting to me to see the shift in culture when it comes to that. Like athletes now, they post when people send them DMs after the game, like, why don't you go kill yourself? I mean, one of the Eagles defensive backs, luckily someone didn't tell him to like kill himself, but just had, it was a message post. One was like, pack your bags, get out of town. <laughs> and then he like had a good play. It was like, nah, you're cool, dog. You got to stay. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, but I don't think a lot of athletes are reacting against this and openly talking about all the downsides of this. And I just think that it's one of the interesting after effects of the fragmentation, the, the incredible fragmentation of culture is that we have a lot of people who are sort of unprepared for the negative parts of this kind of notoriety that they may or may not have courted. The, the trade feels really, I don't know if it was any better, but let's say you're somebody that's very famous in the 90s, right? And you lose a lot of your anonymity. 
But you get to buy a compound in Hawaii and private, you know, like you get a private jet to take you back and forth. You live a very sheltered life. And, you know, it's likely you'll go crazy like a lot of these folks did. But I don't know, there was a, there was a real fi- financial upside to being very, very famous. And today you can be very, very famous and make fucking pennies from these 35 million views. Here's $17,000. Go buy yourself a used Subaru. Yeah, but also it's also more precarious than ever too. Yeah. Right, like just being famous doesn't mean you're guaranteed like anything. You can quickly fall off the quote unquote face of the earth. And also, like speaking of the killer, was like listening to Michael Fassbender. He hasn't really made a movie in four years. Like, imagine if Mr. Beast stops doing what he's doing for four years. And by stops doing, I mean even like doesn't work eighteen hour days, seven days a week. It's it's a treadmill. All of these folks need to be like on the machine. And the thing is that the platforms are so optimized to juice as much out of people as just makes it like viable enough to chase, but not too viable so that Google's earnings get hit by it. It's a really terrible life. And then, you know, so you're making... He's got like two more years of doing that. Then he's got to go. That's why I assume he's he's building his own like company and stuff. Whatever. Jay-Z didn't keep, you know, you got to move on to the next phase. I don't think that you you end up being like an influencer until you're like 90. Well, I don't know. If you've got, if you do, if you pick the right thumbnail on YouTube, turns out you can. Yeah, he spends like five grand per thumbnail or something like that. But he's also, he's kind of like trapped in a shtick, right? Because he's responding to the, the algorithms and... If he wants to do something different than like the stunt sort of thing, he's kind of like trapped. Yeah, really. some folks managed to to kind of use that. I think there were two uh, Australian brothers that were influencers that YouTube stuff, Danny and Michael Filippo, and they did a they kind of used that fame to get them to do a, a horror movie that became a huge hit called Talk to Me. And I feel like at some point, if you manage to detach yourself from the grind. You kind of go back to more traditional media formats, right? So a lot of them have used the social media launchpad to make a movie. Some have made got video game deals out of them. And I think the idea is like, all right, I'm gonna do this eighteen hours for eighteen hours a day for five years, but at some point maybe I'll have enough money and gravitas behind me so that I can do something a lot more reasonable, like produce a Hollywood movie. <laughs> Which is, you know, what we talk about this new media being the future, but that's what a lot of these folks want to end up doing. What to produce a movie? Build real content. Like it's like it's real content. Well, but the thing is, like you're doing something every week that people watch and gets it gets forgotten forever. I think at the end of the day, if you're a creator, what you really do is is to have content that outlasts you. I mean, I love doing this podcast, but one of the sad things is that it's kind of like water in a river, you know. Yeah. Which is why I think I mean, people I think write that's... books. Like Kara Swisher just wrote a book. Is she going to make more money out of that book than recording four podcasts? I don't think so. Does she? No, definitely not. Although books are usually... I mean, maybe she is. Well, the business model of books is is a lot of times with the speaking gigs and whatnot. But um, but if you have those already, like neither anyway. Galloway nor Swisher need to make a book to get yeah, speaking maybe. gigs, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe Maybe the book has more permanence. Maybe we'll have more... More people looking to create permanent media. I think, look, it's fighting against the tide. Most media is and should be ephemeral and disposable at the end of the day. A lot of the brands that have been created and will be created in digital media are disposable. They're gone and people don't remember them three days later. 
But that's not that's on purpose. Just... I mean, sometimes it's on purpose. Like I think what we do here is like purposefully kind of like daily throwaway media, right? Weekly throwaway media. But I think a lot of these companies trying to build these brands and investing content are trying to build something more meaningful. Like when it's on purpose, it's different, uh, I guess. Yeah, and so it's also the type of media. I mean, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be many podcasts put in the time capsule. That's not what it's for to me. We, we never know. Maybe we'll... Uh, which episode is going in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean... I, what the thick one. Yeah. All right. I got to wrap this up. I've got a family Zoom. We still do that. Started during the pandemic. We've continued this tradition. It's a nice tradition. And you say there's no more communal event. There you go. That's your Super Bowl. I'm from one of the last families of seven. This is all from a bygone era. Well, I recommend doing what I did yesterday was uh, start a group chat with my friend, Poor Scotch, and watch the GTA 6 trailer seven times. All right. Good. I might get into video games exactly. now. Exactly. That's art. <laughs> all right. All right. This is fun. Thanks. See you. See you later. Like and subscribe. Subscribe.